Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Welcome back to Book Rising and our series on radical publishing futures. I'm Meg Ehrenberg, and I'm here today with Michelle Mushabek, writer, editor, translator, musician, and of course, founder of Interlink Publishing based in Northampton, Massachusetts. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. It's great to be with you, Meg. You know, you guys are doing an amazing job. I really enjoy listening to your podcasts and the events and everything you and Bhakti and the other team members have done. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Interlink Publishing is is celebrating 35 years this year, I understand. Congratulations. Thank you very much. You've been publishing with a particularly internationalist focus since 1987 then, including fiction and translation, travel books and cultural guides, history and politics, and children's books from around the world. And uh, you know that we're big fans of your award-winning cookbooks. Um, Could you just start by telling us a bit of your own biography, how you got started in publishing and, and what your vision was behind Interlink? Sure. You know, I was straight out of college when when I started Interlink, and I had absolutely no idea of how a book is edited, published, produced, designed, marketed, publicized, or, you know, distributed. I was just uh, a passionate uh, lover of literature, and I was a radical student wanting to make a difference. You know, it's uh, so... I came from a, from a literary family. My uh, grandparents' house in the old city of Jerusalem was where all the Palestinian literati of the time gathered. But my parents, however, after experiencing multiple exiles, they that I would go to America and study to become a successful banker or investment banker or a highly paid accountant. So that that did not happen. I ended up becoming a publisher and an editor. Um, You know, as a a Palestinian and a young student activist, uh, coming to America from war-torn Beirut was quite a life-changing and and eye-opening experience for me. I, I quickly embraced the values, American values of freedom and the First Amendment and democracy and civil liberties and education and free speech and all that stuff. But I was really disappointed to learn how little people in America knew about where I came from. And I got really tired of having to explain to people that I come from Palestine, not Pakistan. Um, And I was, you know, shocked, really, uh, by their one-sided view of the so-called Arab-Israeli conflict, which was not accepting of of Palestinian history and narrative. Uh, I was also surprised, generally speaking, uh, to find out how little new, how little people I hung out with knew about other cultures and, and, and literatures and how little exposure they've had to 
Middle Eastern literature, African literature, Latin American, you know, literature. So it was really at that time uh, when I decided to change the course of my life and, and become a publisher. So that's when I founded Interlink. I was 20 something uh, with a big idea, you know, to, uh, to, to, to bring the world closer to American readers in the hopes that this will bring readers of the world closer to each other through literature. So that's kind of the, the concept behind, behind Interlink. And the goal was, and still is, to commission, to publish, to promote books that foster a better understanding and appreciation of other people and other cultures. So that's what happened in 1987, 35 years ago in Brooklyn, New York. Now we're based in Northampton, Massachusetts. So we're, we remain fiercely independent. And uh, as you said, we specialize in literature and translation. We do history, politics, memoirs, biographies, multicultural children's books, but as you also mentioned that we are really best known for our awarding, award-winning uh, cookbooks, which also tend to be as radical as everything else that we publish. Well, can I, can I ask you to elaborate a little bit on that? I mean, why, why cookbooks? I mean, I know you've had a few different uh, benefit projects, the Soup for Syria book and the Immigrant Cookbook have both, donated uh, parts of the pro profits to, um, to benefit UNHCR and the ACLU's Immigrant Rights Project, for instance, perhaps there are, there are others in that uh, category. But what, what to you about, what about cookbooks in particular? What does it afford as a, as a genre? I can tell you, when I first started interviewing and I was passionate about literature and translation, I very, very quickly realized that I was not going to be able to make a living and raise a family on the income that, you know, fiction is, is going to generate for me. You know, of course, we've had support from, you know, they were used in comparative literature classes and so on and so forth. But it was very hard to get Americans to take it on a novel written by somebody from the Arab world or Africa or whatever, or somebody whose name they, uh, they, they would have a hard time pronouncing. So, so I realized this early on and cookbooks is, is one area that really saved the day. And it really, uh, in a way funds a lot of the projects that we're passionate about, but you know, they're not money-making projects. So, and, and we found really the, the, right, um, the right business model and the right formula for cookbooks because we're also foodies and we're passionate about food. And when it comes to cookbooks, uh, they all double as cultural guides. This is the criteria that we use. Uh, and this is what really sets us apart from mainstream cookbook publishers. We look for great writing and as well as amazing recipes and stunning photography. Um, so our cookbooks are not just straight cookbooks. They tell you more about the traditions and the customs in, the, in a country, the culinary history, the 
they have stories and anecdotes and tidbits about the culture and so on, and much more. So that's why they also tend to be radical. And I'll give you an example. For example, Judy Kalla's Palestine on a Plate was the very first cookbook to use Palestine on, in the title. Mm-hmm. Presented to many publishers before it came to us, and everybody rejected it because they wanted to call it so-called the Middle Eastern cookbook, but they didn't want to use the word Palestine. We published it, Palestine on a Plate. We followed it up by another uh, second cookbook from the same author called Baladi Palestine, which is my homeland, Palestine. Um, you had Durkhanai Ayubi, and you interviewed in your uh, uh, last event, the cookbook, uh, Radical Cookbook. Uh, incredible, event. incredible woman. <laughs> what, what an amazing, brilliant, brilliant uh, thinker and writer and, 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 and speaker. The, her cookbook, Parwana, is one of my favorite cookbooks and it also has all the ingredients that I just talked about. It's, it's a love letter to, Pakistan, to, to Afghanistan, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it tells a beautifully written uh, immigrant story, really, in a sense. So you talked about our immigrant cookbook. Our immigrant cookbook came out of, a, of an idea when Donald Trump was, was, was elected. And it was an antidote to all the hateful and anti-immigrant rhetoric that he uh, spewing at us, you know. So we decided, and and we get a, we got a lot of help. It's it's uh, it's a cookbook. It's called the Immigrant Cookbook that make America great. And there are contributions from eighty immigrant uh, chefs, very famous immigrant chefs, who really we wanted to showcase the contributors of uh, the contributions of, of, of immigrant chefs in, in America. And as you said, we donated a portion of the proceeds to the ACLU's Immigrant Writers, uh, Immigrants Rights Project. And the same would suit for Syria, that same idea. Also, uh, we donated over half a million dollars to, for food and medical relief of Syrian refugees. So while we are passionate about food, we also do one humanitarian cookbook a year. And this year, later in the year, we're publishing a a cookbook called Forever Beirut and uh, recipes and stories from the heart of Lebanon. And uh, this is a book also, uh, we will be supporting the Lebanese Food Bank because uh, in the aftermath of the August 2020 blast and that devastated Beirut, the Lebanese Food Bank has done a tremendous job in in feeding the Lebanese and people in need. And that's what we're supporting with this new cookbook. Beautiful. do Do you have any sense, maybe this is a hard question to answer, but do you have a sense whether these cookbooks become a kind kind of bridge or a way in for readers to other genres? I mean, you mentioned that literature and translation is a hard sell, but I wonder if someone who who loves your cookbooks finds their their way there. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Meg, to think that way. 
because first the idea behind Interlink is that if you genuinely would like a non-Western experience and you would like to learn about another culture, we give you the fiction from leading novelists in that country. We, we give you the history written, you know, uh, by people uh, in that country, but we also give you a travel guide so that you can go there. And we also give you the cookbook. So it's kind of an overall, you know, experience that we strive to give uh, in our publishing program. Uh, but you're also right about many, many people who discover our cookbooks and discover Interlink come back to us and, and, and order a lot of our fiction. And I wanna say something about fiction and translation. Yes, it is very hard to publish. You know, there is no doubt. It is expensive to translate. It's, there is not a level playing field. It's hard to bring in authors from, you know, the Middle East or Africa or Latin America to promote them and tour them here in the United States. Um, but if you persevere, I think it pays off. And one example was that uh, a couple of years ago, there was an article in the New Yorker that the headline of the article was the best 10 uh, novels from the Arab world. And out of those 10 novels, six of them were interlinked titles that we published 25 years ago, you know? So it's kind of better late than never type of thing. Amazing. <laughs> so those, those novels that I said in the first year would sell 500 copies, you know, now 35 years on, some of them have sold 30 and 40,000 copies and mm. are classics and being used constantly by professors in comparative literature classes and Middle East history, women's history, you know, African studies and so on and so forth. So yes, it's uh, finally happening. And is that a change in your readers as well? I mean, do you think, do you think that's part of a broader cultural change? We're definitely experiencing a, a cultural change, you know, the, uh, and that has brought, uh, and, and as a result of not only what Interlink is doing, there are a lot of great inter indie publishers who are doing similar things. And of course, you know, uh, organizations such as the Radical Book Collective that are really expanding the, the, uh, the readership of a lot of, you know, great writers who, um, whose voices were unheard before in the West, and especially a lot of women writers from the, from the Middle East and Africa and Latin America. Well, it's certainly our hope that we're, we're contributing to such a, a, an expansion. Um, has, has the shift to digital publishing changed the game for Interlink at all? Uh, yes and no. You know, it, digital publishing made life easier in some sense when it comes to the technology and to producing books. And, you know, of course, we the old days we used to typeset everything you make by hand. <laughs> and I remember that very clearly with the first book that I published. And, you know, uh, but uh, digital publishing is, is a double-edged sword, you know, in the sense that especially when it comes to eBooks. Uh, it's been quite challenging for us uh, 
to digitize nearly 1,000 backlist titles. Uh, and we've, we've also had to speed this up, especially during the pandemic when we are, a lot of people were, were uh, wanted ebooks because they were, uh, bookstores were shuttered and, you know, so people were going online to find ebooks. And, and uh, even though initially I have to admit I was not a huge fan of ebooks and I was kind of uh, late uh, coming on board, we've, uh, we've uh, expanded our ebooks in the last uh, two years. And while the digitization of ebooks, uh, you know, we, we outsource the e-conversion of the ebooks, and that's the easy part of it. But when you get them back, it's like having to proofread 1,000 titles. And you are already stretched too thin and you are understaffed. It's a monumental job. So we do have uh, an army of interns and helpers and, and others who are uh, uh, proofreading those books. And we have so far uploaded between 250 and 300 ebook titles uh, of Interlink. And we're trying to do the rest as, as fast as we possibly can. Yeah, I'm, I'm listening as you talk about how the pandemic made digitizing more urgent. And I'm thinking about other aspects of the pandemic's effect on publishing and, and bookselling. And, and one of the questions we've been asking guests in this series is how you, as a small publisher, tackle corporate giants like Amazon, who, who gained an even greater share of the, of the market during that period. You know, Amazon is popular. It makes ordering easy for people. And it has super fast delivery. Uh, they discount books and they carry everything. They carry all our titles, for example. So they're here to stay and, and, and we have to live with the Amazons and Barnes and Nobles of this world. Uh, but my worry is that the bigger they get, the worse they, the terms they dictate to us will become. Mm. And uh, there's no doubt that Amazon has helped us expand our reach, you know, globally. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I have to say that every opportunity I get, all of us, we encourage our readers to first go to their local indie bookshops because it's so important for us to support indie bookshops the way they support us and hand sell our books. Uh, before deciding to go to Amazon. And if you can't find them at, at the Indie Bookshop, then you can go to our website, which will help us also enormously. Yeah. Take, taking in, into account all, all of those factors, what, what in your mind uh, would have to change for independent, radical, non-corporate publishing to thrive? You know, most of the publishers I know are are doing fairly well. You know, it's um, it's it's a health it's a it's healthy. Uh, we've seen uh, over the past few years major corporations involved in consolidations and mergers and acquisitions, and 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 we're now experiencing a really dangerous trend in the industry 
that publishing is moving towards bigger, faster, and more profits for large publishing houses. But this is in a way an opportunity for indie publishers. And indie publishers who are successful, in my view, have two things in common. One is passion and passion inspires people. And if you're passionate about what you do, if you're not passionate, you're gonna really lose your authors, you're gonna lose your staff, you're gonna lose the reviewers you pitch your books to, you're gonna lose international partners who license your books, and ultimately you will lose your readers. So passion is the most important ingredient. And believe me, I see so much passion among my colleagues who are you know, indie publishers. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, truly amazing what they're, what they're doing. You know? The other thing is, 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 is our ability to adapt quickly to changes in the marketplace and, and, and readers' tastes. And, uh, you know, by definition, uh, independent indie publishers are <laughs> independent. It means you're on your own. <laughs> it's uh, no corporate investments funding you, no banks to, to, to bail you out, and, and, and no nonprofit fundraising campaigns to get you out of trouble in, the, in difficult times. So you either adapt quickly or you perish. This is exactly what really happened to us during the pandemic. Everything was going smoothly and good, and all of a sudden, boom, it's there. You know, because bookstores shuttered, everybody canceled their, their orders for our spring and summer list, which was just coming off the press. Uh, international trade came to a complete halt. And what are we to do? And we still had staff, we needed to pay salaries and so on. So we really had to move very, very quickly and mobilize everybody and think uh, outside the box. What are we gonna do at this point? And, uh, and that's what we did. We changed our business model and, and focused more on direct-to-consumer sales. You know, I started, writing a, a weekly newsletter uh, that resonated with a lot of people. And that newsletter sometimes talked about books, but sometimes it was political commentaries and commentaries about the, the times and all. And people started really forwarding this, my newsletter to colleagues and friends and so on. Now we expanded our email list to over 40,000 subscribers who read our newsletter every week. And of course, we always talk about books and, and, and authors we are excited about, and that helped us enormously, you know. Uh, and of course, Zoom, uh, you know, had, had a role to play there. We were able to bring in those authors that we always said we couldn't afford to bring to the US on tour, so we now were able to get them on Zoom. And, and that in and of itself also, it's something that was not done before and, and, and was, uh, our readers were very interested in that. So, yeah, this is, this is uh, you know, business models of traditional mainstream publishers uh, do not work for indies. 
So indie publishers have really to devise their own business models and adapt them and customize them to fit their own needs and their own readership. And, uh, but there is a final point that uh, I would like to make about what indie publishers, you asked, what do they need to be continue to do? And I would say that the world we live in is a diverse one and the world is changing. So publishing needs to accurately reflect the work, the world as it is. Um, from the books we publish to the staff we hire to the partners we choose to work with. Uh, diversity in publishing is really, really important. And that's where, you know, it's gonna get us, move us all forward. And indie publishers have the power to shape culture, you know, and um, in a way we serve as gatekeepers as we decide what gets published, uh, which stories get amplified, which ones get shut out. So it's, it's important that Diverse voices are, are, are truly represented and, uh, and amplified. And this not only contributes to making our book community more inclusive, but it really contributes to making the world a, a better place. So that's my two cents. Thank you. Um, as you. As you know, uh, we'll be holding a Radical Books Collective book club on Jumana Haddad's The Book of Queens in May. Um, <laughs> and I was wondering if you could give our readers a little, a little teaser about that novel. Yes, this is, this is one of the novels we're publishing this spring that I'm really, really excited about. It's, uh, and I, I love Jumana Haddad's work. She's a leading a uh, Lebanese writer. She's as feisty as they get. She's a journalist. She's a human rights activist. And her, her work has been translated into many languages. And, and we're thrilled to have her as part of the Interlink family. She's, um, uh, the Book of Queens is a family saga. It's a family saga uh, that spans four generations of women caught up in the, in the tragic uh, whirlwind of turf wars and suffering in the Middle East. It starts with the, with, the, with the Armenian genocides and then the Israeli occupation of Palestine and to modern day civil wars in, in, in Syria and, and, and the struggles between Christians and Muslims and, and, and um, that we're facing, that the Middle East is facing today. So it's, um, it tells the story of these four women that belong to the same, you know, uh, tree branches or, or branches of the same tree, I should say. Um, and each one of them has a, a, a very, a, a deep story to tell. But there's one thing in common between all the four women is that their unwavering power and, and, and resilience in the face of adversaries and, and uh, adversities of being a woman in a, in a, in a, in a war-torn region. And uh, so it really is, it's beautifully written, but it's also intense, you know, I should say. 
Um, and it also challenges the, the, the systematic abuse of religious and political power. It's really a great read. It's a book of history and heritage and loyalty and religion and feminism and, you know, all combined. So I can't praise it enough. I can't wait. <laughs> are, are there any other uh, radical titles from Interlink that we should all be reading right, right away? You know, that the, there are books that were, that are forthcoming and that I'm thrilled about in every category that we publish under. But I will, depending on how much time we have, I will quickly tell you about one more title. Perfect. And that I'm really, uh, an author that I love. Her name is Sefi Atta, and her latest book is called The Bad Immigrant. And, and Sefi Atta, is an award-winning Nigerian author. Uh, we've published all her works, and this is her fifth novel. Her very first novel, uh, Everything Good Will Come, won the uh, Wallace Oyinka Prize for African Literature. And that blew me away when I got it unsolicited early on. And uh, her latest novel, Swallow, was uh, released last October as a, as a Netflix original movie. So I, I, uh, I also recommend you watching uh, this movie. So her latest novel, uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant account of, a, of again, an immigrant, an immigrant family's struggle and the lessons learned about diversity in America. It tells the story of a modern day Nigerian family uh, that wins the, uh, the visa lottery to come to America and pursue their American dream. And it examines the culture clash faced by immigrants trying to assimilate while at the same time still preserving their identities. And uh, it is humorous, it is intelligent, it's unfiltered, it's uh, satirical. And I found it really very, very, not only compelling and compassionate, you know. And uh, so I think uh, for readers who have never read Sefi Atta, I think it's really, it's, it's, it's a good time to start because she's a novelist that I, I love and I highly recommend and I cherish and I think she's going to go places. Oh, I am a fan of Sefi Atta as well. So very much looking forward to that title. Thank you for these recommendations. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for taking this time to chat with me. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much, Meg. And thank you all for all that you do. Thank you.